Greetings, Restoration Church. Bring you greetings from Jubilee Community Church in Minneapolis, where this morning they are gathered to think about the nations. And we miss being there, but we are really glad to be here this morning. Ladies, it was so good to be with the, the men this week, and I know that all of you are more impressive than the men, so you must be very impressive, because I was very encouraged with the work of God with the men this week, and the Lord gives a wonderful time of playing and eating and fellowshipping and, and just feasting on God's Word and really uh, being real together, and it was a, a tremendous time. So uh, I just counted a huge privilege to be here, huge privilege to uh, be able to be, be part of what Restoration Church is doing over the course of this weekend. Back at Jubilee, we've been thinking about four big questions over the course of this fall, trying to back up and think about uh, the question of, of what is the big story of the Bible and, and what is it that makes up our worldview. You, you may find these questions helpful just to think about. We were wrestling with them a little bit this weekend, and, and we're just going to find our spot right in the, the middle of these questions this morning but these are questions that, that everybody must ask, everybody must answer, everybody does answer in different ways. But it's a great starting point to uh, start up a conversation with whoever. Think about those in your workplace or wherever you're at. They're all asking and answering these four questions, and they're all doing it in different ways. The first big question that everyone must ask and answer is, where did we come from? Where did we come from? We know the Bible's answer starts with the first five words, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created. But think about your coworker. Think about your loved one. Is there disagreement right there at that first question? Second big question everyone must ask and answer. Who are we? Who are we? What am I? The Bible has an answer that has transformed all of history. The answer that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered here this morning is created in the image of God. They are an image bearer, which means, by implication, they have dignity, they have honor, they have value, they have worth, and it means they have human rights, things that are due them according to the Scriptures, like justice. Think about another worldview and how these questions are asked and answered. They love the idea of human rights, but they don't have the foundation from which it comes. Third big question, what is wrong in the world? As has been prayed and mentioned, the Las Vegas shooting, the, the devastation and destruction of the island of Puerto Rico, which is so near and precious to so many in this body. Every week, another story. Every week, another tragedy. What is wrong with the world? Everyone must ask and answer this question. The Bible has an answer, doesn't it? That's powerful. The, the answer to this question is part of what unleashed that Reformation 500 years ago. Can we get that Reformation slide back up? Whoever's doing slides, that's a really, really helpful slide. But the Bible's question, Bible's answer to this question, what is wrong with the world, is that our first parents 
didn't believe that God was good. Therefore, they disobeyed Him, which we call sin. God's response to sin was to curse the world. This world is under a curse. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the world. This world is not as it should be. He created all things good. But it's cursed. It's marred. Marred by this thing called sin. So Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, all but three chapters of the Bible, is a story of reality and brokenness and abuse and murder and hatred and theft. All a mark of man's rebellion to God. This thing called sin and God's response. This thing called the curse. Fourth big question. What's the solution? What's the solution to the biggest problem in the world? Boy, if there's any city in the world that has lots of answers to this question, it's yours, isn't it? What is the solution? Well, you run around the city and you realize how people answer these questions shape what they do, what they live for, has implications in every different direction. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were out for a jog slash walk. Where's Ray Chen? Ray, don't hate. If you listen to this on tape, don't hate. Trying to be like Ray. We're we're going along and we're we're going through a little park near us and and I heard someone say, Pastor John, Pastor John. And so we we stop and um, turn around and and there's a a young lady from our church, a, a wonderful gal. Uh, one of our pastor's wives, and she's just a beautiful gal with a beautiful little boy, just just bright and beaming. And there she is in front of one of the largest abortion clinics in our city, uh, just just passing out literature, just saying, "Hey, uh, consider consider some options." And she was there, and and right behind her was another really beautiful young lady, looked like she had a really really sweet spirit. That young lady was wearing a vest that said "Pro-Choice Volunteer." And I just saw these two beautiful young ladies in contrast and thought they're both desiring to do good things, both desiring to help people. But the way they answer these big questions is shaping the way they go about helping, thinking about what is the problem and what is the solution. This morning, our sermon text is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. For some of you, this is a very, very familiar text. For others of you, I hope it becomes a text that you go to again and again. My goal this morning is that every person in this room would take Ephesians 2.10 and be able to use it in conversation, use it in your relationships for great God-glorifying purposes. This is a powerful text. The logic of this text is so clear and so compelling and so good. The text gives us four big sections, four big sections, and you can block these out on your notes. Again, if you don't know this text really, really well, I commend it to you. I heard this probably uh, 12 or 15 years into being a believer, and it grabbed me and has not let me go since then. I'd heard it before, but it grabbed me as I heard it preach in a fresh way, and my prayer is that it would do that for you this morning. This is the kind of text that during the Reformation unlocked so much power. 
If you look at this Reformation outline, really it's all wrapped up in one big word. The word is authority. 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 If you look back historically, the thing that changed everything was when men and women began to see that authority was not from religious leaders. Authority was not from church statements. Authority was from God's holy word. When that began to happen, when when that began to be understood, people began to live under the authority of God's word. According to scripture alone, everything else changed because every one of those messages is found in scripture, including this good news that we heard last week that we're going to get into this morning. So the Reformation is all about this question of authority. It was a recovery of the Bible. Remember when the disciples were talking to Jesus and they said, Jesus said, do you also want to leave? They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, what did they say? The words of life. The words of eternal life. Words of life were rediscovered. What we have this morning are words of life. They are words for your life. They are words for your marriage. They are words to help you think about how to work where you work. They are words that you can be the messenger of life to others. So we look back at these reformers. Not going to spend a lot of time on Calvin this morning, only to say God used a very broken man in remarkable ways. The Reformation is not about any superstars. It's about very flawed clay pots who God used to bring words of life. And that was true of John Calvin. He taught many things in the city of Geneva. He applied the scriptures to many areas of life. He is worthy of study, of understanding. The the former pastor, as well as prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, said that John Calvin should be considered a founding father of America. So great was his effect on the beginning of our nation. But it was light that came from his pen as he brought the scriptures to life that is the remarkable legacy that John Calvin leaves. But our task this morning is not wide, it is narrow, and it is driving down deep on this these two words, sola fide, faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. All of these are interconnected. Everyone links to the other. This morning is faith alone, and we are here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We begin with the first three verses, which we might call your spiritual resume, or your contribution to salvation. Friends, if you've never lingered over these three verses of the Bible, they are among the most humbling three verses in the Bible. Consider, if you will, bringing this resume to a new job. For here there are ten descriptions of who every person in this room is. Almighty God, who knows all things, says these ten things are true about you. The one who created you, the one who created you in his image, 
with honor, dignity, value, says these things are true of you. We will get to good news, but before we get there, let us linger for a few minutes with this stunning reality, this humbling reality. John Calvin said, humility is the beginning of true intelligence. And this, friends, is a text that humbles us. We all are prone to, by nature, think like my Uber driver a couple of weeks ago. I'm a good person. I do good things. God loves me because I do good things. Right? That, that's the normal narrative in our country. This, this text obliterates that. Verse 1. And you, Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, those whom he calls saints, chapter 1, verse 1, speaking past tense to those who are now in Christ. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, right out of the gate. Not going to ease into it. We're just deeping, diving into the deep end of the pool here. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were in the tomb, spiritually speaking. Walking around, living, breathing, lungs, heart, all that functioning, and yet dead in trespasses and sins. Unable to stop sinning. Unable to save yourselves. Dead. Verse 2 in which you once walked. What's that which you once walked in? Trespasses and sins. You walked in them. That was the normal pattern of your life. Day after day, walking in trespasses, trespassing God's law, walking in sin, believing there was something better than God, believing that God is not good, believing that God did not love you, and pursuing your own way. Third, you were following the course of this world. This world has agendas, and they're not about Jesus. Jesus doesn't get on the front page of the news, though this book says he created all things. He is ignored. The course of this world is about many other things, and we were there in the crowd walking that way, following the course of this world. Not only that forth, we were following the prince of the power of the air, Do you press into that a little bit and say, Prince of the Power of the Air, who who is that? For some of you, you're doing some cross-references, thinking about that, and you realize there's a small, Scripture says small, G, God of this world. That is Satan. And according to God's Word here, you and I were followers of Satan, who is the small G, God of this world. Friends, just let that land on you. This is who we are by nature. Fifth, the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Okay, so this, this prince of the power of the earth, this, this spirit of the age is now at work in the sons of dis- disobedience among whom we all once lived. We were all sons. We were all daughters of disobedience. 100%. Every one of us. That's who we were. Your neighbor. 
my children, my grandmother, everyone, sons of disobedience, dead in trespasses and sins, walking in those, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, this sixth line on a resume. Six things we've contributed. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That could be translated the sinful passions of our flesh or the lust of our flesh. Just like Adam and Eve, that first sin, they saw something that they, they lusted after. With that fruit, First John, when it talks about loving the world, talks about the lust of the eyes, we were all those who walked in the sinful passions of our flesh. Your sinful passions are different than others, but we all have them in their different forms and ways. We were, next, carrying out the desires of the body, All of us, again, these desires are not good desires in this text. They are sinful desires. They are dishonoring to God desires. And not only were we carrying out the desires of our body, but we were carrying out the desires of our mind. But maybe the most devastating of all of these is saved for the end. When he says, You were, I was, we were, by nature. Do you see that next phrase? Please see this next phrase there in verse 3. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Children of wrath. All the power that created all things, existing in God for all time, is turned in His holy justice, in wrath, against those who are guilty. And each of us was a child of wrath. That is, the unrelenting power of God was faced against us in just anger, ready to punish us with His wrath. That's who we all were by nature. I told you, this is devastating. This is Humbling, underline, exclamation point. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. A sweeping assessment. God creating the world good. God creating us in His image. And yet man, broken. But more than that, dead, rebellious, enslaved to sin, children of wrath. Friends, this is the actual sober reality for each of us apart from God. Calvin said it this way, Only those who have learned well to be earnestly dissatisfied with themselves and to be confounded with shame at their wretchedness truly understand the Christian gospel. If this is landing on you, you may say, Pastor, I came for good news today. I came for hope today. I came for life today. Friends, I want to tell you that the great 
issue for most Americans is they have not rightly understood their diagnosis. They have not rightly understood their true condition in God's perfect estimation. We are about to turn a fantastic corner, but we must linger here. We must feel the weight of this here. We must understand this is our resume, period. Print it. Send it. This is it on our own. This is it. You will be amazed by grace, said another writer, precisely to the degree that you are shocked by your own sin. Devastating. Humbling. Troubling. And yet, this Bible is assuredly, wonderfully, a book of hope. A book of good news. And what we have in this text here is good news. Amen? We have good news. We have the words of life. Words of life. As we've laid out this dark, dark backdrop, now God drops the beautiful, beautiful, valuable diamond on this dark velvet cloth, and it now, friends, will sparkle before us. Because two of the greatest words in the Bible come at the beginning of verse 4. And they're only precious when we've lingered in those first three verses as we have. But now the hinge turns. And verse 4 now turns into the second section of God's contribution. What is true now on our resume on page 2 of what God has contributed to what's true of us if we are in Jesus. And friend, if you were brought here by someone, you don't know about this Bible, you don't know what it is to walk in Jesus, I'm here to tell you that all that we've said about who you are is true. Unfortunately, true. And yet, God is a great and kind God. And what is next can be true for you by faith, as we will see. Verse 4. Now the second section, what God has done. Verse 4 begins, but God. But God. But God. That bleak, dark place turns but God. And now, friends, consider what's true of God. What's true in the equation of God? Let us consider proposition by proposition what is true of God. But God, first description, being rich in mercy. What is mercy? Not giving us what we deserve. And our God, friends, is rich. He is loaded, as it were, in mercy. He loves to give mercy to those who don't deserve it. Because He's rich in mercy, next phrase, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He took action. 
He did something remarkable. What did He do? God made us alive together with Christ. Think about the grammar here. Go back to middle school English, middle school grammar. The subject, the direct object. Do you remember that? Way back when? What's doing the action? What's receiving the action? It's really powerfully seen in this text. We were dead, not contributing to the action taking place. God is the actor. He is the one doing the action. And God made us alive together with Christ. All of this is happening through the work, through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. What fueled it? The Father's great love for us. We said all over the the men's retreat this weekend that Satan's great lie is that God is not for us. God does not love us. I'm here to tell you that this is another great word that tells you that the God who made heaven and earth loves you. And because of the great love with which He loved you, He sent His Son to die. Why? So that you, being dead in trespasses, might be made alive together with Christ. Last phrase of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Mercy is not treating us on the negative side how we deserve. Grace on the positive side is giving us what we did not earn. And so it's by grace that you have been saved. Not only that, now he is just piling on the promises, piling on the good news. He has, God the Father has raised us up with Christ Friend, if you're in Christ today, you are alive. You are alive. You are spiritually alive. You have eyes to see Jesus and His beauty. You have eyes to see this Word is true. You are alive. The the words of life are coursing through you just like your blood is coursing through you. Not only that, but the Father has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. United to Christ. Inextricably bound to Christ. A secure future with Christ. From the deepest depths to the highest heights, our future is secure. So we live in this world that is so broken, so difficult, so painful. It's what my favorite preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. We've got to remember this world is like rotting meat. This world is not what it's supposed to be. This world is not comfortable. In this room, if we took the time to hear the stories of pain that you've walked through, pain that you're carrying right now, we'd say, God, why is this world the way that it is? It is broken. It is under a curse. But friends, all of us have an echo in our souls that knows this world is not all that there is. And so he ends this section pointing forward to when things will be as they should be and says, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the riches of his grace that are not able to be measured. He might show the, 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 the kindness 
of Christ to us. The, the, the grace, all these good things we don't deserve just piling on one after another, after another, after another. So friend, when the next funeral at this church occurs, know that your brother or sister, if they're in Christ, it's not at all the end. It's the beginning. Friend, when you die, look at verse 7 a little more closely and see it. In the coming ages, the Father is committed to showing you the immeasurable greatness of His grace to you. Fresh expression day after day of His kindness to you in Christ Jesus. So, oh, we love our morning coffee. An expression of His kindness, don't we? We love that beautiful sunset. We love to to play in the surf. There's lots of evidences of His kindness now. But in that day, it will be without sin. We won't be battling our corruption. Oh, what a day that will be. Our spiritual resume, apart from God, the glory of what God has done Part one, part two, now part three. Now this gets really personal, really practical. Some of you have been to the greatest burger place in the U.S., In-N-Out Burger. You've probably ordered a double-double. Right here we have a double-double. We have a, 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 a two sets of two. Okay, A, a logical uh, set of four things here happening in verse 8 or 9 that if you get this, Oh my, it's, it's powerful. It's mighty. All right. We have a positive and a negative. And Paul really wants us to get it, so he gives us another positive and a negative. All right. Two positives, two negatives, all put together, really, really important. Really big punchline, really big conclusion that's so important for us. So now he takes verses 1 through 7, and he just summarizes them all together, and he says this in verse 8. Here, here the first positive statement. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, Grace, the work of God for us, how do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Now this is not faith in faith. This is not, do I have enough faith? This is us having eyes open to see, I am doomed. I am undone. I am guilty before a holy God. And my only hope is the sinless Savior. That's what faith is, right? We put our faith in an object. Our faith is in Christ. This is what we contribute. We're made alive. We see Christ. We put our whole trust in Christ. And we cling to Him as He holds on to us. This is the first positive summary. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This means we're renouncing our self-trust. We're not bringing our duty or our obedience to God that he might be impressed. But Paul wants to make that clear. So now the negative contrast. This is not your own doing. If you're taking notes, you might want to make a box with these four slots, but in some way capture the double-double here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, positively, negative. This is not your own doing. Okay, you say, okay, we're smart. We're DC folks, we got it. Paul says, no. I need to repeat this. 
Let me say it again. Second positive. It, the salvation, is the gift of God. God made it. He purchased it. He gives it to you now. But Paul knows, especially those who are high achiever types, love to do stuff. It's me and it's God. God's working. I'm working. Together, we're accomplishing salvation. Paul says, no, no, no. This is a gift from God. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. He's giving it to you. So the second negative is not a result of works. No one can boast. Not a result of works. Friends, this separates, this message separates Christianity from any other religious system in the world. No works. No works. No works. Positive, negative, positive, negative. Next two words. So that. There's a really big so that here. You see it at the end of verse 9? So that. What's the big so that? What's the big reason he gives here? I've got to be honest. This was very underwhelming for me. Like seriously, this is the punchline. This is all, all building up for this. But that was owing to my lack of understanding rather than its lack of importance. Because this is so big. And the implications are so very real for your Monday and your Wednesday and your Friday. So that, what's the next phrase? Say it with me. So that no one may boast. Why is this a big deal? Think about this. On your good days, when it's up to you, when you've done enough good things, when you've been in the Word, you got up extra early, even though you have to go to work early, you got up extra early. You've been praying faithfully for five people, and that person you know you should share with at work, you shared with them. You even fasted for them at lunch, and you're at the end of the day, and you're like, man, wow. I mean, I've got to say, like, well done. <laughs> Not saying, just saying, like, every box is checked. So good, so good. What happens to us when we're getting together for coffee that night with our Christian friend? When we forget that it's not of our works? Yeah, had a pretty good day. A little tired. Was up at five. <laughs> Be in the Word. A little hungry. Didn't eat today. Did share the gospel with my hardened friend. Very difficult. Courage, right? Now, we, we, it's a little over the top. But we do it in our own sneaky little ways, don't we? Our own little Christian boasting that we love to do. Sliding those things in there to look impressive. That's what happens on the good days if we forget this gospel that is true so that no one may boast. But maybe more devastating is what happens when we forget this gospel on the bad days. We haven't been in the Word. That struggle we've had victory over for a long time suddenly hit us like a train and we're right back there in that cycle of sin. We've been distant from God. We've been just 
in the, in the pit. And what happens when we forget the gospel on that day? I'm, I'm not even a Christian. God can't even love me. I'm not even... Wh- wh- why? Where? What? What? We're undone when we forget this and we're in that bad day. Friends, this is so big that we not boast in our efforts because this is what sets us free. Sets us free. These are the words of life. I've got a daughter, Gabriella, who's nine. Now imagine with me, if you would, if she comes to me and says, Daddy, I colored a picture for you. Now, will you love me? That's hard. She says that, right? What do I say to her? Every person in this room knows exactly what I'm going to say to her. Exactly. What do I say to her? Babe, thank you for the picture, but I love you. Not because of this picture. I love you because you're my daughter. Like, you got to know that. This is a big deal. Like, not because of the picture. Then a little while later, she comes back to me. Daddy, I did the dishes. Do you love me now? Whew. This is really hard as a father. Like, babe, what's going on here? This is not how this relationship works. I love you. You're, you're my daughter. I'm your daddy. You don't have to do the dishes so that I will love you. But we're not done yet. We have one more verse. Did you hear that summary? It's not of works. It's not of works. It's not of works. Now we get to verse 10. Our future. Our future. A wonderful future. The future of every person in this room who is in Christ. For we are God's workmanship. And let me look around and say, he's done some good work. He's done some good work. So impressive to be with the brothers this weekend. So many evidences of God's good workmanship. But, but, but hear this now. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. What's going on here? Created in Christ Jesus for good works? you got to be kidding me. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But you see, friends, Paul takes nine verses to make it really clear we were dead God made us alive together in Christ. It's not about works. It's a gift of God. It's not our own doing. It's all of Him. And when He gets there, when He puts the period there, when the stake is in the ground, now He says, you are God's workmanship. When this is really clear, now run. Live in good works. Go to the nations. Live in your office with the words of life. So I say to my daughter, once everything's squared away, yeah, you're going to do the dishes. And I would love for you to color a picture for me. I would love it. 
Once she knows that's not what defines our relationship, once she's so secure in my love, so safe and resting there, then yes, go play soccer. Go make something for your mother. Go love your little sister well. Awesome. Secure in who she is and what is her relationship with us. Jeremiah 9 says it this way, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understand and understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. Calvin said it this way, While all men seek after happiness, scarcely one in a hundred looks for it from God. One more Calvin quote, faith is like an empty, open, stretched hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Friends, this is the gospel. Amen? This is the gospel. Amen? These are the words of life. Friend, you have the message of life, not of works. And yet now, men and women freed to live in the grace of God and do exploits, do adventures, do good work, not at all to earn favor with God, all under the free acceptance love of our God. Let me give you three brief applications. We'll pray, we're done. First one, preach this good news to yourself every day. There's a baby Christian out an old little guy named Jerry Bridges teach me. And he said, every day I have to preach the gospel to myself. And I said, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like you preach the gospel, Billy Graham preached the gospel, you believe, and that's it. But he knew something I didn't that I've learned over the years. I forget this. And I need to be reminded of this every day. Not only do I have to preach this to myself, I have to preach it to my wife when she's struggling with where she's at. And then she preaches it back to me. Restoration Church, I just pray that you'd be a people that's preaching the gospel to yourselves and to one another all the time. This weekend as men, we talked about truthing one another in love, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth of Jesus to one another. Let me commend that to you. That you preach it to yourselves and rehearse it to one another. We need to be reminded again and again and again. Second application. Ephesians 2 doesn't end with verse 10. It continues to talk not just about the vertical reconciliation that has happened, but also the the horizontal reconciliation that has happened. That is, those who are far off, those who are separated, those who are divided by a wall of hostility, that wall has been torn down, and those who are far apart have been brought together. And even at this church, a display of God's reconciling work. Oh, that we would be, because of this gospel, reconciling, living out God's great reconciliation, that every tongue, every tribe is going to bow before our God. And now we live out the implication of this reconciling. Third, as this goes deep inside you, I encourage you to meditate on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 today. I encourage you to consider it 
And then I encourage you to share it. You have these four boxes. Who we are apart from God. What God has done. That double, double. Not us, but God. And then we are His workmanship. Our great future. Take this. Share it with a coworker. Write it on a napkin. It's a great text to share. So many of your friends, so many of your loved ones are working so hard, but based on so little authority. We, friends, have authority, and we have the words of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. It is, as we heard last week, the power of God unto salvation. Would it be powerful in our lives, and would it be powerful out from our lives? We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.